Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. From Connecticut Public Radio, I'm Kyone Wolf, and this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. This is Holy Week for many people, so we hear meditations and questions from the Reverend Dr. Shelley Best. Did God make the coronavirus? I don't know, but I think there's a message in it. We'll also hear from William McDonald, the editor of a new obituary series from the New York Times called Those We've Lost. It's the most um, anxious time I've ever experienced in this job. You're following a story that you're part of, in effect, or could fall victim to as well. You'll hear from people who are living with homelessness through this pandemic, like Elizabeth Rodriguez. Yes, we do understand what's going on, the virus, but do not lose hope or faith. And you'll hear insight from 2019's kid governor, Ella Briggs. Please stay inside. You're saving lives. Stay tuned for our special series from Connecticut Public Radio, Us in the Time of Coronavirus. Be with us after the news. This is Us in the Time of Coronavirus from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Kyone Wolf. In this show, we talk to people who are struggling, people who are helping, and for their poignant perspectives, we hear from children. It's Holy Week for many Americans, a heightened time of prayer and meditation and looking inward, but it doesn't matter what your religion is or if you don't feel compelled to engage with religion at all. It seems like every one of us has been looking inward in the past month or so. We've got questions to which there are no answers. We seek community precisely when we cannot be with community. We're looking for guidance when it's just us in here. So how are faith leaders making sense of all this? What does all this pain and death mean, if anything at all? How are they reconnecting with their communities? And how are those at the front lines of faith finding comfort for themselves? The Reverend Dr. Shelley Best is the president and CEO of the Conference of Churches, pastor at Redeemer's Church in Plainville, and the founder of the 224 Eco Space in Hartford. I asked her how she's been connecting with people differently since COVID-19 arrived in our part of the world. The first week I was home, I personally called every member to discover most of my members don't have email addresses. Several of the members were like, Pastor, I don't have a smartphone. I have a flip phone. They are not on Facebook. They don't know how to live stream. Most of my members don't do Zoom. So because the common and the majority of my members are in that 60 plus range, I had to do a remix because what I like to do is not what I'm supposed to be doing right now. I need to be doing what best serves them. And what best serves them is freeconferencecall.com. <laughs> and with freeconferencecall.com, you can actually get a designated number. You don't need a code. So you can dial this number and directly get into a room and space so we can connect this community. So that's been our primary tool to keep the church, the church together. And so every day of the week, we have something to touch. But it's been sober because my whole world is community building. I've been auditing a class at Hartford Seminary this semester. 
on Howard Thurman, who is an amazing African-American mystic, one of America's few African-American mystics. And um, Howard Thurman was like the spiritual guide to Martin Luther King. He studied with Gandhi, really deep thinker, created a multicultural church back in the 50s in San Francisco and um, studying all of his meditations. And so I was sitting in the class, which now is on Zoom. And then I had this moment like 30 years of my life has been community building and now we can't be in the same space. And believe it or not, spirit spoke to me in that you're still a community builder. And I had to kind of sit with that. And so I spent really time reflecting on it. And I realized early on, like at least for the last 10 years, I have been involved in relationships using Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. I even at one point in time used Match.com and other dating apps. And you know what I have come to discover that you can create meaningful relationships in this technology world. I have people that I love that I've been in a relationship with now for close to 10 years through Facebook that I have not met. And that's my community too. And so while we can't be in the same space, the heart still gets warm. You still care. FaceTime is a blessing, but so is being in the space, just hearing somebody's voice. Text. People can fall in love by text. So I'm still a community builder. We're still connecting. But it means I have to develop some tenacity, a different kind of order in order to maintain my communities. I know there's always a lot of pain in the world. There's a lot of a lot in the world, but there's a lot of pain in the world. And a lot of times that pain doesn't make much sense. How are you talking with God about the pain that you're seeing? I don't think that's what I'm talking to God about these days. I'm really listening more to God about the lesson in this time. There's always been pain. And really what I'm focused on now is the deep listening. In my conversations with God now, it's I'm starting to feel more gratitude, appreciation, This idea of death is something that I just always know because we're all going to die. We just don't know when and we don't know how. But death is always a constant conversation. So it's not a new thing because caring for community means that people are going to leave us at different times for different reasons. That's sort of what I'm faced with. Now we have the addition of coronavirus, which might be another way people I love leave. And coronavirus could be the way I leave. Don't know. Might be. But in the meantime, it's about being present in the day. I'm having better conversations with people. And you don't realize how fragmented you become until you have the gift of being able to just sit still in your house. What are you hearing from people? Who you're talking with a lot? Are you hearing a lot of fear? Are you hearing surrender? What are you hearing from people? That's maybe a little different than what you've been hearing up, up until this point. I have some people, a couple families, who now that they've been with their family for more than they're used to, there are some tensions. 
Um, I have a lot of members, of course, that are grieving. So grieving in this setting is hard, but it's still grief. And grief is always a kidnapping. So people are now being kidnapped in their houses. Talk more about that when you say it's a kidnapping. So you have the death. You have that time period after the funeral. Time can go and you think you're doing okay. And then all of a sudden the kidnapping happens where it's like, emotionally, you are triggered. You are crying for no reason. You are savagely crying. It's a kidnapping. And the kidnapping can happen like you see a commercial on TV for Jell-O pudding and all of a sudden you are like snatched into a different emotional space. That's what I call kidnappings and grief. And so for a lot of people, being quiet like this makes the kidnappings come more because you can't avoid them. You're not running around. You're not being the workaholic. You're not in all these activities. You just have to sit still. Quiet time comes and that's when kidnappings come. And so for some people, the kidnappings are grief, but then the emotional kidnappings are life because for a lot of people, we're so busy, we avoid listening to our soul. And so social distancing gives you that quiet time where you end up thinking and reflecting on things that you've been avoiding, which is actually a good thing because then healing can happen, even though it hurts while you're going through it. But you have to hurt to go through it at some point in time. People are looking to you for some guidance and some inspiration and relief. So who are you looking to for that? It sure has been good that I took this Howard Thurman course because I've been reading all of his work and he just has some of the most beautiful meditations that are just breathtaking. Then I have my community of friends that I reach out to and we touch base. We do what we call reality checks. They said, oh, are you all right? I said, well, I have to admit, I was really excited the other day to see the garbage truck pull up. And then I said, is that a sign that I might be slipping? <laughs> that I'm excited over the garbage truck. And then I'm just staying in prayer. It's just, it's actually quite delicious, I must say. But, you know, yes, it's true that we're facing an illness in the world. I think God is saying something to all of us in this. What do you think he's saying? He or she. What do you think they're saying? Or they. <laughs> <laughs> I think we forgot we were animals. That we were a part of the planet as nature. I think we humans thought we were above that. And we were in control. With the virus, we're recognizing we are nature. We are animals too. I think as the environment is changing, God is showing us that health could change because the environment's carrying things differently. I think the change of nature can affect us humans. Oh. <laughs> so I think the coronavirus is reminding us that it's not about the politics. It's not about the continents. Whether we're Democrat or Republican, whatever your hue is, we're all connected. And the good news of Corona is it's an equalizer. The vulnerability happens with all of us. And so we all have to try to be humble. Just be humble because it could be any one of us and have empathy towards anyone that has it. Recognizing it could be you or your family member. It can happen to good people, 
rich people, poor people. This is a great vehicle for us to remember that. I feel humbled. Like, oh, having that insurance card made me feel like I had some kind of power. No. And so to me, it's divine. God can stop the world. You won't have the schedule you're used to, your planned events, your graduation is canceled. You won't have your wedding. There are events. You can't even have a funeral. You can't have things the way you want to have it. God is in control. Ooh. Well, yeah, we knew that, but now we really see it. You're really interrupting things. Oh. And so then some would say, did God make the coronavirus? I don't know. But I think there's a message in it to care for one another. And I think what we're starting to see now is the virus isn't operating according to the rules, the way people think it's supposed to happen. Some people have symptoms. Some people do not. Some people are old. Some people are babies. Yes, you may say it could be gatherings of five, but it only takes one. So it's not operating the way we think. So we celebrate the first responders. We recognize them. But see, some of the first responders I'm looking at is when I take my moment and pop into Whole Foods, those guys and gals behind the counter are putting their bodies on the line, too. And police officers, ambulance drivers. So there's a whole host of people, these people driving around with the Amazon trucks and the deliveries, the Grubhub people, they're putting their bodies on the line too. I think it's something where you just kind of look at humanity and you say, oh, we're all connected. It could be any one of us. I think I'm troubled that when I do go into a store quickly, bothers me that we're not making eye contact a lot of times now. People are like not looking at each other. There's fear or people walking in the neighborhood trying to walk fast and not be closed. That concerns me. I hope we don't get to the place where we're completely afraid of one another. When you look ahead and you consider the world that's sort of laid out in front of us, how do you feel? I still am an optimist. We most likely will come out for the better and we'll understand how to have more meaningful relationships. I was so busy, I wasn't making a lot of calls to friends and checking in the way I am now. So I'm grateful that I can do that now. That's how we should be living. Do we have to be as busy as we've been? And what's the most important thing anyway? I think these relationships are it. A little while after we finished talking, I got back in touch with Shelley and asked if she'd go back to that collection of Howard Thurman's meditation she'd been reading and pick out one that really resonated with her in the past few weeks. So here she is reading from his book, Meditations of the Heart. And the piece is called Still Dews of Quietness. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our striving cease. Drop thy still dews of quietness Still dues of quietness is a happy phrase which suggests a mood, an atmosphere, rather than an idea or a concept. It is a feeling tone of peace, of tranquility that settles down over one's spirit. It is the thing that can happen only when one somehow manages to stay put for a spell. How wonderful to sit alone with 
one's own life parts gathered together and sense the whole of one's interior landscapes being invaded by a blanket of calm, by the still dews of quietness. This I must cultivate more and more and with ever greater frequency till all our striving cease. How deep and often bitter are the strivings within me, the conflicts of indecision, the conflicts of loyalty, the struggle between good and evil, courses of conduct, all this and much more makes of my spirit a battleground, a citadel of tempest raging. All of this is a part of me. All of this must be stilled, must be settled. Oh, how my soul cries out from moments when the battle does not rage. When I hear the whisper of the still small voice, giving me reassurance and renewal, after which I can go forward without fear, but with the confidence that the way I take is the way for me. Drop thy still dews of quietness till all our strivings cease. Thank you, Reverend Dr. Shelley Best. Next, the New York Times has a new obituary section called Those We've Lost. Remembering some of those whom we've lost to COVID-19, New York Times obituaries editor Bill McDonald talks about how this new series got started, who is and who will be included, how his life and work have changed in the middle of this pandemic, and what it's like having to memorialize a member of your own team. That's us in the time of coronavirus after the break. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. Bill McDonald has been writing obituaries for the New York Times since 2006, and now he oversees a project that he wishes he didn't have to. It's called Those We've Lost, and it's a continuously updated collection of obituaries of people who have died due to complications of the coronavirus. I asked him why they decided to launch this project. It seemed like a, a natural project to embark on, given the shocking numbers of people who have, you know, had begun dying, and some of them well known. The idea was to put faces on the statistics that we're reading about. These are real people, friends and neighbors, you know, people who live in our towns and cities, or around the world. We're trying to be as broad as we can internationally, you know, all walks of life, um, not just people who were famous or prominent. For example, I'm the first nurse to have died in um, New York City from the virus. So it just it kind of um, harked back to our project in 2001 after 9-11 when we did something called Portraits of Grief, which were snapshots of the people who had died at, uh, on 9-11. And that was a finite number of people, of course, and we could, at that time, it was a, it was a big project for the paper, and they were able to pretty much cover everyone who had died in that in those um, attacks. This is, of course, just much different. We're dealing with hundreds of thousands of people, I guess, potentially. 
And so we're not going to, we have no plans to try to cover them all, but we're just trying to give a cross-section, if we, if you will, of interesting people with stories to tell. And uh, we're trying to do as many as we can. They're more abbreviated than our normal obituaries. They're probably three to 400 words each, where a traditional obituary could easily go from 1,000 words to 1,400 words or something like that. So they're snapshots in effect, but people are contacting us about people they know, and they want us to write about them. Talk a bit more about that process. How do you choose, and how will you choose who to feature? There's no science to it. Everybody is worthy of a story. You know, we all, we all have stories to tell, we're, and, and we're not trying to make any distinctions among people as more worthy than others. But we are journalists, and we are writing about people who... Um, who may be an interesting story, in, in besides the fact that they, you know, had fallen to this uh, virus. And again, it could be a fireman, it could be a nurse, it could be a playwright like Terrence McNally. So we're we're trying to be broad-based and ecumenical and all that, um, diverse. Um, so there's no real science again to choosing that we just have to pick some that we think would be of interest to readers, people whose lives, who may have marked in some way, maybe below the radar for most of us, but nevertheless, um, the kinds of people that we're losing um, could be from all walks of life. How long have you been doing obituary work? I would say about, I started in 2006, so it's been a long time. <laughs> I've been doing this, I've been the editor of this section for a good while, but I, I enjoy it. It's I love history, I love biography, and uh, it's a fascinating job. That's why I've stuck with it, I think. I've had different jobs around the New York Times, but um, this is by far the most interesting one to me. Yeah, there's something really special about the story being finished and working within those contexts. I wonder, how does Those We've Lost, the column, how does it feel different to you than any other obituary work you've done? They're hitting home to us. You know, we're we're all. Someone mentioned in in the newsroom the other day. We're not in the newsroom, of course, but we're on conference calls. That we're writing about a story that we're also part of, in effect, because everybody's a part of this, and that's the difference. I think doing obituaries journalistically, as I've done over the years, um, you maintain a certain detachment, dispassion what have you, uh, you're going about your job objectively, you're writing about people um, you don't know personally, um, you're trying to do justice to their lives, uh, you're talking to people who knew them, there's a certain remove, but now these these people seem much closer to home for us. Uh, in fact, one of our subjects was a former reporter at the Times who I knew quite well, and it was a shock to hear that he had died. So I think it's it's as if we're writing about something that's happening to all of us at the same time, including the people writing these and reporting them. It's it's we feel as if we're in the middle of the the battle, writing about it, not on the outside. You mentioned that when the Times covered the obituaries of people who died on September 11th, 2001, there was a, a concerted effort to make that happen. Have there been other efforts like this at the New York Times? Not since then. I don't think so. This has been the I don't recall anything like that. I know that we've had, when there have been mass shootings, there have been attempts to portray the people who were killed in those and, and offer little snapshots of them, literally pictures and maybe with some you know, biographical information. So it's not unprecedented and it's, it's not an original idea, but of course the circumstances are much different now. And um, these are people who are 
in a sense, similar to, you know, victims of a mass shooting because they're, it was undeserved and they were innocent. But this is something on a different scale, though. Yeah. How are you? Personally? Mm-hmm. <laughs> bearing up. I'm working from home. Um, we have a crew of about anywhere from 8 to 10 people. Some of us have conference calls on our computers. It's... You know, you're isolated. It's a, it's a, the strangest experience I've ever had. I'm sure all of us had. We're working from home to be confined and isolated, and yet putting out a newspaper, which is kind of miraculous when you think about it, doing them from our living rooms and kitchens and what have you. It's just, it's unsettling because we're also thinking about our own health as we're doing this, you know. I mean, those questions have to enter everybody's mind. So, um it's the most um, anxious time I've ever experienced in this job, most stressful in many ways. And yet this is, it's a kind of eerie calm as well around us, you know, because we're, we're alone, we're, we're in our homes, the streets are virtually empty, and um, it's just hard to define, but it, it is truly uh, something we've never experienced before. Yeah, and everybody else is seeing death looming and numbers increasing, and... I think we're able to keep death sort of at the periphery of our consciousness, even though it's this undercurrent of everything right now. But you and your team are facing it in ways that no one else is. I think that's true. I think we're much, it's much more present to us. Um, the people we, we know or might live near us or might be working near us in, in New York, but also people around the world much like us. So you're right. It's you're right. You're following a story that you're part of, in effect, or could fall victim to as well. And we always deal with death. That's our, in a way, our you know our beat. But we deal with lives more than we worry about the deaths of individuals. We report their deaths. We say how someone died. But we're really interested in the biography and what made them important. Um, so it's it's more biography and history. But this is something different. Uh, it's a different beast altogether. And so, yeah, it, it probably weighs on us more than maybe even some of my colleagues at the time, so I'm not sure, because we're sort of chronicling, you know, the deaths. And so it's it's, it's in, right in front of us. And I think that probably adds to the anxiety that we're probably experiencing. But, you know, we're all professionals. Nobody's, you know, breaking down about it. We're all just going about our business, uh, doing our jobs. Uh, my team is, they're, they're great. They're fantastic. They're working really hard. And, and keeping good spirits. And so far, luckily, all of us are okay. So, you know, we're just going to push on. Yeah. And there is something to be said. I know for me, I'm working from home as well. And uh, I've been interviewing a lot of people since this all started. And I find that that brings me a lot of comfort. It gives me direction and some purpose and meaning because I don't want to be scrolling through Twitter for <laughs> for all my waking hours and just existing. And so, I bet that this this purpose you have, while it was powerful before everything happened, to be working in death, I imagine that's another powerful means of feeling like you're getting something done that really matters. It it does. It feels like we're part of the story, you know, that just keeps unfolding. We're more, you know, traditionally obituaries is sort of a, a sidelight of, of the newspaper. People enjoy them. They read them. But it's never front and center, like the you know international news or uh, national news or maybe even sports and things like that. Um, obituaries are always a kind of you know added value part of the paper. Now we feel like we're kind of thrust into the midst of this story in many ways. That's a new experience as well. 
is there anything that I haven't asked you about that you want to make sure you say? Well, I just, you know, we, the difficulty of the job right now is that we do, as a rule, uh, like to write and report on the most prominent people, you know, in our society and, and give them full obituaries. In addition to do, doing these, um, this project on those we've lost, we're feeling at times overwhelmed. We had a, a famous jazz musician die the other day. We had Terrence McNally. We've had a famous architect die. We've had so many as to keep up. We have a small crew of people to do these. And um, I think the, the biggest challenge for us is to keep up with the toll in effect. You know, how do we keep writing about these people? We We often like to write about them in advance. You know, like a Terrence McNally would have been done in advance. It actually had been an assignment, but the rewriter never got to it, and he died on us. Um, so here we can't really prepare them in advance, so we're kind of doing them one after the other. And it's it's sometimes we feel like we're, um, you know, in an emergency room of some kind where they just keep piling in, and uh, that's where the stress points hit. You're triaging obituaries. Many ways you have to. We do that anyway. Of course, we make news judgments on who we want to write about and who we don't. And it's, it's something that's a very high bar. And, you know, we can't do everybody and we often maybe we'll leave someone out. But we we try to, to do uh, the most newsworthy people. And now we're getting sort of inundated with, with victims. And it's, it's, yeah, it's shocking to see, you know, people. We had a chef the other day who's only in his 50s, a prominent chef in Manhattan, owned some Indian restaurant foods. People like that, where we would have written about him anyway, if he had died of, um, you know, a heart attack. But this was um, just, again, they're they're just piling in. It feels like uh, at times, and keeping up is is the biggest challenge. Is there anyone that comes to mind that really hit you hard that you had to write about? Well, I think all of us were hit hard by our colleague who died. He he wasn't that old, um, Alan Finder. So that one hit home to all of us, you know, because it was one of ours, you might say. But no, I mean, I can't pick out one individual. I don't know any of these people. I never knew them. But cumulatively, it feels there's a certain shock in all this that people are just succumbing, you know, sort of out of the blue. And that's what's hard to uh, keep up with. And um, that's the challenge. And we're doing as best we can. Yeah. Bill McDonald. Thank you so much for your time. I can hear the wariness in your voice, uh, and I really appreciate that you took the time with me. <laughs> probably, and, uh, there's probably there, yeah. Take care. Bye. Bye-bye. That was Bill McDonald, obituaries editor for the New York Times, and their new series, Those We've Lost. After the break, most of us are hunkered down in our own homes and apartments, but what if you've been living with homelessness during this pandemic? You'll hear how guests at the South Park Inn are coping physically and psychologically with these extreme new circumstances. Plus, you'll hear some perspective from Connecticut's 2019 kid governor, Ella Briggs. I'm Kyone Wolf. That's next on Us in the Time of Coronavirus. Be right back. From Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford, this is Us in the Time of Coronavirus. I'm Kyone Wolf. On this show, we talk with people who are struggling and people who are helping. And at South Park Inn, that is everybody. South Park Inn in Hartford has been sheltering individuals and families since 1984. 
They provide temporary and long-term housing, supportive services, and they advocate for solutions to homelessness. Candace Ost is Director of Development and Community Relations, and we talked on March 19th. She told me how they'd created space just in case they needed it for quarantine. We have taken our administrative offices. It's kind of like a little sweet area. Uh-huh. And we have emptied it out. We actually have a pod now with all our office equipment and desks. And um, we are creating a quarantine area. So if any of our residents happen to test positive, we have this quarantine area. It has a sitting area. It has bedrooms. And that's where we will place them while they recover. No one has tested positive, not come with at this point. We have all the questions to ask and check for, you know, taking temperatures, coughs, etc. So far, everyone's clear. To keep people inside, certainly nothing's open anyway, but um, we have added, like, additional activities and programs inside so that, um, like, we created this library area and things like that to keep people inside and occupied. Um, We understand this is a very serious matter, and we're taking all precautions. How are you dealing with this emotionally? Um, You know, if I don't uh, listen to the noise too, too much, I'm doing okay. And I just, you know, I feel like I'm taking a lot of precautions, you know, at certain times wearing gloves and lots of hand sanitizer and washing of hands and trying to be as cautious as I can. In some ways, I feel that I would rather be here helping our guests and making sure they're all safe and, you know, we're making sure they all have their meals and that there's really no disruption to their routines as much as possible. And in a way, I I feel better being busy and occupied in that way. All the staff are rallying together And our guests here are also rallying together and looking out for each other. You know, a couple of the residents just on their own asked for buckets of soapy water to just redo the railing outside and make sure all the surfaces were cleaned. And they just want to pitch in and help and keep each other safe. So I think it, you know, sometimes through a very challenging time, there can be tremendous positive results as well. And that's what I'm feeling here at South Park Inn. We take care of people in society that have just hit a bump along their path for whatever reason, and they need a little help and a little assistance to get back on their journey. And that's why we're here. We're their safety net. We're all pulling together and... um, You know, I wish everyone good health and that we can just make it through this very challenging time. There's a lot of wisdom that comes from a person who's struggled to find a home. And in these especially uncertain times, we wanted to check in on a few guests from the South Park Inn to see how they're doing and to get perspective on this virus. 53-year-old Elizabeth Rodriguez has been a guest at South Park Inn for almost a year I asked her where she's looking for comfort as COVID-19 arrives. I went to church, and the father always says, do not panic, do not stress, stay away from the TV. That will get you traumatized. 
And only God knows when it's time for the war to win, but it's not that time yet. For those who are living without homes right now, what advice would you have for them? Braveheart. Braveheart mentality. Focus. Do not stress. It's only up to God. Is there anything else that I have not asked you that you want to say? Uh, I'm just going to say when you wake up in the morning, always think positive, no negativity. Live your day the way it's supposed to be living every morning. Only God knows when there is going to be a breakdown or not. Yes, we do understand what's going on, the virus, but do not lose hope or faith. After Reginald Clemens' wife died last year, he became homeless. He's 61 years old and now trying to balance his emotions and his perspective on things. You know, there's a strength and there's a weakness into this. Because I, I must say, by me being around other people, it kind of strengthened me to have me to not be alone and sit and worry and think about it so much. And then the other side of that is that, um, you know, sometimes I see myself in other people when I, when I didn't see myself at all. So now there's a minus and a plus to it, but I'm just grateful to be here instead of outside in the cold where something could have gotten worse, you know. But other than that, um, just maintaining and waiting my turn. How's your stress levels? Sometimes it can be up there. I, I, I must say so. Sometimes, but now I would say I'm probably at a maybe a five or six because when I first got here, I was stressing a lot. Things are um, kind of mending their way, you know. I'm beginning to find out that, you know. If I continue to do the work and the will of the Lord, the things that I'm doing, then I would have a chance to see her again. But I just have to stand firm and be patient. You know, I can't rush things. I don't really know the whole insides and out of it, but I know there's a virus going around, and I know this is affecting a lot of people. But I just have to have faith and believe that this suit here pass eventually, you know. And um, I can't work myself up too much over it. Just stand firm and hold on. That's the best I can do. Some things are out of my control. Is there anything that you need now that you didn't need before? I, I, I think one of the biggest things that I need is, is, is more comfort, some encouragement. A lot of times during the Bible studies and some of the singing groups we have here, that encourages me to um, continue focusing on what God has put there for me to do and then stand for him. Be strong. It's got to be strong. I mean, I know things are going to happen where you want to give up. It's going to feel like falling, but I just can't. Uh, i come too far to turn around now. How do you think everything that's happening now is going to affect your ability to move on to the next stage in your life? outside of South Park? I think these, well, I'm not saying all this is happening for a reason, but, you know, who knows? Maybe there's some strength or something coming from this. I just have to stand positive and, and believe that something's good is going to come out of this. 
Is there anything that I've not asked you about that you want to say? Uh, no, not really. I guess one of the good things is just by asking me those questions kind of made me feel a little better about myself being able to, you know, to answer these type questions and, and it also, um, given me strength to, you know, kind of stay focused on the main reason why I'm here, you know, and to guide myself into a better place. That was Reginald Clemens and Elizabeth Rodriguez, guests from the South Park Inn in Hartford. I talked to Candace Ost again this week because a lot has changed since we talked in the early days back on March 19th. She said that recently they transported over 200 individuals experiencing homelessness in the Hartford area to three different hotels, two in Hartford and one in Wethersfield. I asked her why and how that happened. Since a lot of the shelters had uh, dormitory-style sleeping arrangements, it was felt that the opportunity for it to spread should someone contract that virus was exponential. So they thought putting them in the hotels, two people to a room, it would definitely assist in stemming the spread of that. You emailed me and you said that South Park Inn was tasked with providing hygiene kits and 200 dinners to the hotel guests. How has that been going? Putting together the hygiene kits, um, we really just tapped into a lot of our resources and put together the bags and transported them to the hotel. And what are in those bags? Anything that we envisioned people needing, everything from toothpaste, toothbrushes, deodorant, soap, shampoo. So when they arrived at the hotel, there was a welcome table and they were given their room assignments and given the bag of supplies. And the dinners, that's quite an undertaking. 200 dinners every night. Every night. To be honest, that is quite challenging. And we have one um, chef and kitchen manager, so it certainly has increased his workload a bit. We are calling on um, several of our you know, volunteer groups and churches to help us out in providing some of the meals, which is a great help. Um, then we put them in individual containers and then transport them to the hotel. For the needs of food, how would that work? So if I have access to a bunch of food or I'm, I know I could cook a lot of beans or some way to, to connect and help, how logistically does that work? Say someone makes cans of lasagna for 200 people, they drop them off here, we divide them and place them in the individual um, meal containers and maybe enhance them with some salad and rolls. And then um, once that's all completed, we transport them to the hotel. That's wonderful. So while people are making masks, they can also make lasagna. Exactly. That's great. I understand the hotels are staffed 24-7. What's going in at the South Park Inn right now? Uh, at the South Park Inn, we still have our uh, veterans and we have our, our respite guests. And those are individuals who have been, um, they come to us from area hospitals and healthcare agencies. And we have staffing here 24-7 to take care of those folks. 
Do you know where our friends who we talked to, Elizabeth Rodriguez and Reginald Clemens, are they still at the inn or have they been moved to hotels? Uh, They are staying at a hotel in Hartford. They doing okay? Yes, they are. They're doing very well. As a matter of fact, I talked to Elizabeth a little while ago. That's good to hear. Well, thank you so much for all you do. And unfortunately, we'll have to keep doing for a while, but I, I do appreciate you taking the time to talk with me. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Bye-bye. That was Candace Ost, Director of Development and Community Relations with South Park Inn in Hartford. If you'd like to talk to them about donating food, find them at southparkinn.org. In difficult times, it is very important to listen to the people who are in charge, especially if they're governors, and especially if they're kid governors, like Ella Briggs. Connecticut's Kid Governor is a statewide civics program for fifth graders created by the Connecticut Democracy Center. Kids in our state run for office on the platform of a cause that they really care about. Then school populations submit their ballots, and by popular vote, one kid governor is chosen. 12-year-old Ella Briggs held office in 2019 on the platform of LGBTQ youth safety. We chatted by Zoom from her home in East Haven, and I asked her, since she has all this experience leading, if she were at a giant podium in front of the whole world, what would she say right now? I would say, just please, please stay inside. You're saving lives. You don't need to be a rebel and have a big party. It's not only you that's going through this, it's the whole world, but everybody's here for you. We're going to get through it, and eventually things will be back to normal. We can do it. And then we'll have a big party. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Well, if the coronavirus had ears and you could tell it something, what would you say to it? I would say, you're a jerk. Go away. That nobody needs you to be here. And that people want to have a normal life again. So just go away. I think that's fair. I think that's reasonable. So I haven't seen you in a little while and your hair is different. Tell me about your haircut. Oh, so um, my sister and I got extremely bored. And she was just like, Ella, can we go shave your hair? And I was like, okay. So I was like, dad, can I go shave my head? And he's like, uh, no. And then I asked him like 30 million times and he's like, fine, if you want to do it, just do it. And I was like, okay. So I just went into the bathroom and I just whoop. So the lesson is be persistent? Yep. Do it when your mom's not home. So so she can't stop you. How did your mom react to your shaved head? She was like, it's so cute. (laughs) Awesome. We could use a little humor, I think. So do you know any jokes? Yes, I do. They're a little bit about elephants, precisely, but we're just going to go with it. So, did you know that if elephants walk on the beach without their sandals, they sink in the sand? I did not know that, no. Yeah, well, why do you think ostriches stick their head in the sand? I, I don't know to find the elephants that didn't wear their sandals. Wow. (laughs) You got any more? 
Did you know that elephants paint their toenails so they can hide in gumball machines? No. Well, have you ever seen an elephant in a gumball machine? You are blowing my mind, Ella. <laughs> no. It works. Mission accomplished. Yep. Do you want to know how to catch a rabbit? Yeah, how? You roll around in a field and make sounds like a carrot. What sound does a carrot make? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I haven't really listened to a lot of carrots in my life. <laughs> You know, I never considered whether or not I'd listened to a lot of carrots in my life, but now I'm rethinking everything about my life. Thank you. Thank you. That was Connecticut's 2019 kid governor, Ella Briggs. There are a lot of stories to tell about what's going on right now, and I would really love to hear who you think we should talk to. You can contact me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Wolf, and my email is cwolf at ctpublic.org. Us in the Time of Coronavirus was produced by me and Katie Talarski at Connecticut Public Radio in Hartford. The theme music is called This is the Song by Punch Brothers. You can find more information and subscribe to this show at wnpr.org slash us. Now is a really great time to become a member of Connecticut Public or renew your membership. People are listening to public radio now more than ever because we make you feel less alone and we play a vital role to inform you and help you make decisions about how to get through this from essential news reports and programming like this show to our super useful new educational programming on CPTV to daily updates from our newsletters. I hope you can keep us strong and healthy, if you're able, by becoming a sustaining member. Please visit ctpublic.org slash donate. There's even an option for me to do your voicemail or your alert tone or even a motivational message. That's ctpublic.org slash donate. And thanks. Thank you for listening to this show. Until next time, please stay safe, wash your hands, and hold on tight. These are tough times.